Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who waves to you all with the arms of a mountain. Here is the captain. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week in the garage, we are very happy to be featuring Jules by the good folks over at Canned Heat Craft Beer Company. Jules is an NEIPA, a more forward, hazy New England IPA. This has a good amount of oranges to smooth out the bitterness, and with some grapefruit, just adding to the fullness of this delicious beer. Garage grade four out of five bottle caps. And let's give some praise and thanks to our friends for helping us fill up the fridge this week. First up, a shout out to Caroline Smith from the North Georgia Mountains. And last but certainly not least, we have Jill H. in Dighton, Massachusetts. Everybody we mentioned, they went to truecrimegarage.com, clicked on the pint glass, helped us out with this week's beer run. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, B-W-E-R-U-N, beer run. If you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs, Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or look us up on Patreon. And we want to thank you so much for keeping the lights on and keeping beer in the fridge. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. There is someone, somewhere, who knows the truth. Perhaps that someone was watching. Perhaps it's you. Join them. Watch closely. Perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. In late July of 2015, in the obituary section of the Atlantic County Record, there was a picture that was sure to catch everyone's eye. The picture was of a young woman, smiling bright, with long dark hair cascading down her shoulders, holding a single light-colored rose. The picture didn't stand out from the others featured on page A6 simply because of the beauty of this young woman or the charm in her eyes, but the picture mostly stood out because the woman in the picture was so much younger than the others featured in this section. Most of them, three times if not close to four times her senior. One could not help but to be drawn to this picture and to want to know more, to know more of the story of how this beautiful young woman ended up on the same page as a few men in their 60s, a couple of ladies in their 70s, and even Clyde Bud Irwin Jr., who had passed away peacefully at his home at the age of 80. The young, vibrant woman was Tiffany Valente, and she was just 18. Those who knew her best called her by her shortened nicknames of Tiff and T.T. She was from Mays Landing, New Jersey, an unincorporated community that would more than double its population from 2010 to 2020, going from just a little over 2,000 citizens to upward of 5,000. 
This newspaper was from 2015, and it stated that Tiffany passed away tragically on July 12th. The medical examiner ruled her death a suicide. The press of Atlantic City paper could not have posed the question any better when they asked, Why would an 18-year-old recent graduate of the Mays Landing School with a volleyball scholarship waiting for her in the fall and the world seemingly at her fingertips decide to take her own life. To which one could only stop to think, my, now that is a good question. But later after that tragic night, evidence would be brought into the light that might make one think that a different manner of death should be further examined because the mysteries of that night seem to still be hidden away in the dark, which can only make us wonder, did the experts get this right, or perhaps did they get it so terribly wrong? This is True Crime Garage. Tiffany Valente was a 2015 Oakcrest High School graduate. She was going to attend Mercy College on a volleyball scholarship. Tiffany's love for sports included softball and volleyball. And from my understanding here, Captain, she was quite good at softball, playing both on school teams as well as travel and club teams. But then one day she picks up a volleyball and her love for sport changed from softball to volleyball and she excelled almost immediately at volleyball. Well, she was definitely athletic, but it doesn't hurt when you're six, two or six, three. It's like she was meant to play volleyball. That's right. And it became her passion very quickly. She was a middle hitter. She played for Oakcrest high school and East coast crush club volleyball. She was first team all CAL as well as ranked eighth in the state for number of volleyball kills. In one high school season, she had 279 kills and 39 blocks. Her charm and her appeal certainly went beyond the volleyball court, and she was well-liked. She was popular. Unfortunately, she dies tragically in July of 2015, and there's much debate about her death. It was ruled a suicide, but there are others that say, not so fast. We need to further examine and possibly amend the manner of death for this young woman. And if you amend that manner of death, then that opens up a whole nother line of questioning that could involve a foul play investigation. When she passed away, Captain, she was survived by her father and mother, This is Stephen and Diane, along with their dog, the family dog, Tucker. She did have two older sisters. This was from Diane's previous marriage. And from my understanding, Captain, the older sisters were quite a bit older than Tiffany. At the time of her death, she was the only child of the three that was still living in the home with mom and dad. 
So she has two half-sisters. She's basically an only child living with her parents and the dog. And the parents were together, and it didn't seem like there was a, a lot wrong with that relationship. Well, we have her sisters who are now grown. They are married. They have children of their own. So, yes, she is kind of in this only child situation. And she's also a very cool aunt for her nieces and nephews. Now, they lived in Mays Landing, New Jersey. And in 2010, this is a rural area of New Jersey. It's west of Atlantic City. And there's only a little more than 2,100 people living there in 2010. By 2020, that population would more than double. It's like 5,600 people in 2020. So I'm a little uncertain of the population at the time of 2015 because that area was growing so quickly. Now, you said it was ruled a a suicide. Do we know if there was a note left? There was no note left. And in fact, there are a lot of things that point to that this was not a suicide at all. And in fact, that's what her parents and family and many others have been shouting from the mountaintops ever since July of 2015. Another sad note here, too, is regardless if this was a suicide or foul play, We're sitting here talking about an obituary for an 18-year-old woman when less than three months earlier, just less than three months prior, on April 29th, this was signing day. This is when she decided and chose and made it official her choice of college because she was offered five scholarships to play volleyball. And she chose Mercy College And on that day, April 29th, she's featured in the newspaper, this beautiful colored photograph of her with coaches and faculty standing behind her as she's signing her commitment letter to Mercy College. So I understand, look, we all, most of us have very highs and can have very lows as well, but it's, it's very troubling to when putting together this week's episode and doing the research, seeing this bright, beautiful young woman with the world at her feet on signing day, smiling ear to ear, and then less than three months later, she's going to be tragically killed. Well, anybody that has dealt with depression or continues to deal with depression knows that sometimes the hardest thing is to keep putting on the front that everything is okay. Yeah, and we're going to get conflicting reports here, too. We'll have some of her friends or people that knew her. I, I, I step lightly when I call these individuals friends because these were her peers, but I, I don't know for a fact that they were, in fact, friends. But we do have some of her peers that did believe that she was depressed leading up to her death. And then you have her family and others saying the exact opposite. No, that she wasn't depressed at all. Well, we also choose who we put the face on for. Right. Let's get into the timeline. So we're going to go to July 12th of 2015. And on this night, like many other people, we're going to have Tiffany attending a graduation party. This is a graduation party for her cousin, and it's at her uncle's house, who lives across the street from her own house. So the party begins in that afternoon and continues into the night with friends and family celebrating throughout the day and the evening. We need to keep in mind here, too, the relationship of the person hosting this party. So, of course, 
Tiffany's parents are there as well. And this will be other classmates of Tiffany's there at this party as well. So a lot of people that know her are at this party. And as said, it's her cousin's graduation party just across the street from her own. That's going to lead us to a little bit later into the evening. And this is when one of Tiffany's friends, this is a close friend of Tiffany's, calls Tiffany's parents, Steve and Diane. In some of the reports, most of the reports, in fact, it states an unnamed friend calls Tiffany's mother and father, and they want to speak with them, not with Tiffany. And they're asking, hey, could you meet us? I'm going to get my mother as well, and we would like to meet you at your house. Well, they're just across the street, so no problems, right? We will most certainly meet you. They have something that they want to discuss with Tiffany's parents. Yeah, and if you're Tiffany's parents and you're getting a call from her friend saying, hey, I need to bring my mother over to talk to you, you're probably thinking that this is pretty serious. Now, I believe that this conversation goes down just a little after 9 p.m., Yeah, and this is a a weird conversation, and I do want to clarify here that there's going to be a dispute, a money dispute. So the friend and the friend's mother, they're telling Tiffany and her mother, the day before, Tiffany used the daughter's credit card, her friend's credit card, for unauthorized purchases. Now... For many of the sources don't state the dollar amount that was of concern. Some state that it was $300. Further digging, I can confirm that the actual dollar amount in question was $86. Right, so not not a huge amount of money, right? And so what happens here is the short of it is when confronted in front of her mother, Tiffany says, "No, I don't I don't know what you're talking about." She denies using her friend's credit card to make any of these purchases. Then the mother and her friend leave the Valente residence. And shortly afterward, Tiffany and her mother, Diane are discussing this situation. And at that time, Tiffany does fess up and say, look, yes, I did use my friend's credit card. And of course her mother scolding her for doing so. Yeah, and then also, why did you lie to us? But it's reasonable why she would lie. She was probably a little embarrassed. But like you said, it's under $100. This is not that big of a deal. It's not like her parents don't have any money. They could they could pay the amount back. You know, They could go on being friends. Tiffany could apologize. And maybe she'd be in trouble and she'd have to pay the money back to her parents. And look, I give her a little credit. She did come clean in the end. Yes. But and again, it's reasonable that when she's confronted with all these people, and especially around her father, maybe she just felt embarrassed. This discussion and the using of her friend's credit card is going to lead to an additional argument between mother and daughter. And Tiffany's reaction to this argument look she's probably quite stressed out at this point she's been confronted by her friend and her friend's mother and as you said and rightfully so embarrassed about the situation then she gets into it with mom probably hoped that hey when i came clean to mom that that would be the end of it and we can move on she storms off after this argument and there is some speculation as to why 
Tiffany actually left. But when we say left, we mean she's out of Dodge. She just, she doesn't just leave the home. She walks down their driveway. And again, this is a rural area and she decides that she's going to walk down the road. She's getting out of there. I found it awfully curious that she has a vehicle that is not one that she borrows from mom and dad. She has her own vehicle. Right. And she chose to go walking instead. And I'm sure her parents thought that this was a little weird, but they probably just think, look, she's going to go off and blow off some steam. And she'll be back in no time at all. Well, and I couldn't find this information, but I wanted to know if the car had gas in it or not because it's a possibility that she's like, okay, I need to go somewhere to blow off some steam, but I can't get in my car because it doesn't have any gas, so I'm just going to take a walk around the neighborhood. Yeah, and it's unclear, too, what her parents thought was going on at the time. There's been some reports that they have said that they thought, well, maybe she was just going to go down to the edge of the driveway and call a friend and be on the phone for a while. They were a little surprised that she decided to walk and leave on foot because both of them have stated that Tiffany was afraid of the dark. And these are roads, Captain, that don't have streetlights on them. So when you decide to go down walking on that country road, you are in the dark, my friend. And the only time you're going to have any light, maybe you turn on the flashlight feature on your cell phone or would be from when a car would pass by, you would see the headlights. Right. But other than that, she's going to be walking alone in the dark. So she leaves the house around 930. They do have her on a a camera that was on the house. Yeah. The the father, her father, Stephen, has a deer camera set up. I believe it's near the edge of their property toward the front. And this camera captures her walking by. And in my notes here, Captain, I I have listed that the, the timestamp on that deer cam or trail cam is I, 928. Now, again, I believe that when you set those up, you set the, the clock yourself. So I don't know if that is to the minute, how exact that is. Right. But the other thing that was interesting to me, too, is that the trail cam also lists the temperature at that time of night. And it was in the upper 60s. So it's still warm out, but she's leaving. In the picture, you can see her. She's wearing some tiny shoes, which from my understanding were brand new shoes that she might have even been wearing them for the first day. And she's wearing some pretty short white shorts or light colored shorts with a dark t-shirt that's not particularly big and a large light colored headband holding her hair up. And I'm using headband for the lack of a better term there. Somebody out there will know what to call these things, but you can see her walking on this trail cam and it's, it's a still picture. So she is actually turned and looking to her left And I believe it's very hard to tell because it's black and white picture there and it's not very descript, but it looks to me like her cell phone may be in her right hand at that time. Yeah, it's really hard to tell. And if you want to look for yourself, we'll put this photo on social media. Her parents would eventually go out and start looking for her. Remember that trail cam 
The timestamp is 928. We don't know exactly how close to the minute it is, but what we can say is it's fairly accurate because all reports, all sources say that she was storming off on her walk around 930. Her parents will eventually go out looking for her. Now, the first sign of trouble for mom and dad, Captain, is going to be around the 11 o'clock hour. This is when her father, Steve, finds Tiffany's cell phone. And this is near the end of their driveway. So very close. It's, it's, it's on their property or very nearby their property. And of course, when you find a teenager's cell phone, an 18-year-old cell phone, you are immediately concerned. This should be on her person. And as dad points out, he states in an interview, she was on that phone 24-7. That was a part, almost a, a part of her body at this point. And so to find the cell phone, and then you compound that idea with it, she has this fear of the dark. Some even describe it as an intense fear of the dark. Now mom and dad are really concerned. There, It's not just, old oh, Tiffany went out to blow off some steam anymore. It's now, where is my daughter? We need to be out looking for Tiffany. So let's go back over this. Uh, Tiffany's friend contacts his parents, says we need to talk to you about something. They sit down with Tiffany and her parents and say, hey, look, she, she used my credit card for these items. Tiffany denies it. And then when her friend leaves, she then confesses to her mom. Her mom is giving her a lecture where when Tiffany gets up and leaves, she leaves their property by foot around 930. And about 1130, once the parents are like, hey, she hasn't returned home. We haven't seen her. And the cell phone's found. And and they find her cell phone at the edge of the property. They go, something's not right. And they call in a missing person report. Yeah, they officially file a missing persons report with the local police department there. And on top of that, now we do have some extended family helping in the search for Tiffany as well. Now, we're going to have to fast forward here, Captain, almost exactly three hours. And this is when Tiffany's parents get the very sad, tragic, and unfortunate news that their daughter is dead. And not only has something happened to her, she was struck and killed by a train. Yeah, her body was dismembered. Approximately four miles from the family's home around 11.15 after she went missing. Right. And it was the uncle. So Tiffany's father's brother was the one. He's out looking for Tiffany. He's helping in the search. And he gets to the train tracks, again, four miles approximately from the family's home, the Valenti home. He goes over because he sees cop cars. He sees emergency lights. And something is going on on the train tracks. So he goes over to see what's going on, to which one of the officers there tell him somebody was hit by a train, and we believe, you know, we're still trying to sort this out, but we believe it was a young female adult. And after some time, they figure out that it was the missing teenager, and they tell the uncle, 
we need you to get in our car. We're going to have to go to Tiffany's parents' home and notify them that she's been killed, that she's been hit by the train. Wisconsin is no stranger to high-profile cases and horrific murderers, from the notorious Jeffrey Dahmer to the perplexing Ed Gein. But on a cold night in February of 2022, a new name was added to the list of Wisconsin's worst, Taylor Shabusiness. From the onset, the details of the case shocked even the most hardened detectives and traumatized young rookies. Using Law and Crime Network's gavel-to-gavel coverage, Severed Affair provides an in-depth narrative of the disturbing case. The Law and Crime original podcast uses exclusive audio and court footage to piece together the gruesome story. You can listen to Severed Affair exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcast. Check out Severed Affair by our friends from the Law and Crime Network. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. And customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And You can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. 
Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right, we are back. Onwards and upwards. Cheers to you, Colonel. Cheers to all the beautiful listeners. Cheers to all the people in the back, tall cans in the air. Now, when we left off, Captain, we have the Valenti family getting the unfortunate news that their daughter was struck and killed by the train. And they're getting this news at 2.30 a.m. Now, what they will later be told is further detail that sometime after 11 p.m., and I say that because there is a bit of a dispute. I've seen the time reported differently. It's as early as 11.07 p.m. and as late as 11.16. So we're really only talking about the difference of eight or nine minutes here. So early after the 11 o'clock hour, early into the 11 o'clock hour, Tiffany is struck and hit by the train. And what we will learn is a student engineer operating a southbound New Jersey transit train. So this is a commuter train. They're running these trains all the time. And I believe there was approximately 60 passengers on this train. Now it's late at night. This train is heading from Philadelphia to Atlantic City. And they report that they fatally struck a pedestrian, which they will refer to as a trespasser because you're not supposed to be on the tracks. They hit this pedestrian as the train is approaching the mile marker number 45. And this student engineer is being supervised by an experienced engineer at the time. They, they both have the same story. And their story is the train was traveling at approximately 80 miles per hour of speed. And the engineer states that the individual, the trespasser, dove in front of the train from an east to west direction. And again, this was around 11.15 that night. Now, it's later confirmed that the person that was hit or run over, because that's the debate here. And we'll get into those details very soon, because there's there's really good arguments to suggest that this is not what it looks like or not what is stated in the early reports. But what we do know is our victim here suffered multiple traumatic injuries, especially to the head area. The limbs had been severed. The feet had been severed. Um, some reports state... Uh, cut from the body. Other reports state ripped from the body. And some of the items that should have been found with Tiffany either were not found or they were not reported to be found. Now there are a couple items that we know that, that were not found at the scene, but it could be both, right? A couple of items that were not found at all that should have been there, should have been present with Tiffany. And then there were some items that may have been found, but not recorded in the documents citing this tragic event. Well, like you said, the two workers on the train report the same thing. 
we don't know if that was them trying to cover their tracks. No pun intended. But you also wonder, is there a possibility that she was just walking too close? She gets hit by the train and it kind of throws her body into this, this motion of where it looks like maybe she dove in front of the train, but it was just because she was too close to the train itself and got hit. If that makes any sense. It does make sense. I just don't know why anybody would want to walk that close to the train. Um, I'm not saying it's never happened before. It's just, I think what we need to do here is review all of the information and see if we can possibly have an opinion as to what took place. Because as said, this is a, a hotly debated item and topic and right. I think rightfully so. Now, as far as the, the, manner of death ruling and labeling it a suicide. The jury's out a little bit uh, as to when that ruling came about. I have seen an interview with the mother, with Diane, with Tiffany's mother, who says that, look, the, the authorities ruled this a suicide less than 24 hours after she was struck by the train or run over by the train. And there are other reports that indicate that it wasn't official until July until July 18th. So keep in mind, late on July 12th, she's struck by the, the train. On July 13th is when they get it sorted out to the point of identifying the person who was hit and notifying the family. And so I, what I think here is oftentimes there's a little bit of checks and balances. At the very least, you should hope. And there's certain channels that these rulings need to go through. And so I think that it's possible that we don't have anybody telling different stories here. I think all of it could be true. It could be that the, the early investigation quickly determined or believed that what they were seeing is a suicide. And then they took a few days to officially call it a suicide because we're talking about the, the ruling being July 18th at the very latest. I've seen some reports July 14th, July 17th, but we know that by the 18th for sure that it was ruled a suicide. Now we talked about a couple of items that were missing from the scene of, of, of the train incident at mile marker 45. And one of those items is an item that we talked about earlier, her shoes. This is very bizarre, but oh, July 27th. So 15 days after the incident, Tiffany's mother finds her Tiffany's shoes and headband. She's walking, and this would be about a mile from their home. The shoes are clean. The headband is clean. So I'll tell you right, right now, you don't have to be an expert to look at these two items and say, if foul play was involved, whoever is responsible for the foul play did not take these shoes and headband from the scene, uh, the train scene at mile marker 45 after the fact and then move them. So what you're looking at here, Captain, you really have two options with the shoes and the headband. Either Tiffany decided to storm off and commit suicide, and along the way she chose to drop her cell phone near her family's home 
She walked about a mile from her home and then decided to discard her shoes and her headband and then walked another two and a half miles approximately to where she decided she was going to dive in front of the train as, as the engineer stated in his report. One troubling factor here is the route that she would have taken doesn't make a whole lot of sense if this was planned by Tiffany or if she knew what she was going to do. Maybe she was completely hysterical and, and, and her actions don't hold any logic. That would stand a reason. But the other thing, too, is the fact that if she did discard her shoes and decide to toss them and then keep on walking, the train track area themselves, this is rough terrain. We're talking about sharp rocks. We're talking about broken glass. We're talking about even if you're walking on the railroad ties, this is old wood. And one thing that many have stated is there's not evidence to suggest that she walked that distance without any shoes on. But these items were found in her neighborhood, so one wonders, was she going to continue her walk just a little further and then come back and get her items and then head home? Possibly, but if we're going to rule this a suicide, then we have made the determination that she discarded these items and then walked close to three miles from where these items were found to where she was struck by the train at mile marker 45. Right. Now, what we're going to have here, Captain, very early on is, as stated, this is going to be disputed. The manner of death here is going to be disputed. So the family wants the ruling to be an indetermined death or suspicious death. They believe that foul play likely occurred here, and that's the only reason why she was run over or struck by the train. And then others in the media would share some of the same opinion. And so here's a couple of headlines from online articles that we found. One says, did 18-year-old Tiffany Valente, who was terrified of the dark, walk four miles at night without shoes to throw herself in front of a train? The other, another headline here, Captain, was high school grad being chased before grizzly train death. Here's another one. This one from WHYY says family of New Jersey teen killed by train disputes suicide ruling sues to, pr- to prove kidnap murder plot. And finally, from the Daily Mail, family of teen hit and killed by a train in 2015 say she may have been kidnapped and her death was wrongly ruled a suicide. And again, citing that a a lawsuit was being filed. This lawsuit would not be officially filed until the following year, into into 2016. This is after the family hired um, Paul D'Amato as an attorney to represent them. And this case was featured on the, some of the more recent episodes of unsolved mysteries. And Paul D'Amato, the attorney for the family was interviewed for this episode of unsolved mysteries. And he had read about it in the newspaper. He's a local guy had seen it on the news and he thought, 
He says, look, I thought here's, here's look, there's this horrible tragedy. The family is in total shock about what has happened. And the, he thought, look, you don't need to pay me a bunch of money. What I'm going to do for you guys is I'll get all the official reports and then I'll sit down and talk with you. And he actually thought, he says that I thought going into this, I'm just going to have to go get these official reports and then sit down with the family and deliver them the news that they don't want to hear that. Yes. In fact, your daughter did commit suicide and I've gone through all the reports and I can share them with you. Well, he gets the official reports. He starts looking through them and he says, look, there might be something more here. There's this doesn't seem quite right. There's a few things that are awfully sketchy about the details of that night. And he says, in his opinion, that he think it, thinks it was a bit of a rush to judgment by the transit authority. So it's the transit police that are investigating this. And we do have several individuals on that Unsolved Mysteries episode that state, look, we've got a lot of respect for the transit police. They, they, this is a large outfit, too. And they state, look, they're very good at their jobs. They're very good at what they do. However, they do not investigate hardly any homicides. It's very few and far between. And frankly, not a whole lot of accidents either. So there are some that have questioned if they have the, if they're capable of handling such an investigation and some even questioning the crime scene or the scene of the incident itself, if evidence was collected properly. And if the one could make a good determination or good ruling based off of that evidence that was found at the scene. Well, because we know that she's very upset and it's not, again, out of the realm of possibility that somebody is walking and doesn't understand how close they actually are to the train that's coming. Right. And it's traveling, as said, according to the report, about 80 miles per hour. She would, I mean, if whether she's facing the train or not, she would have ample time to get out of the way of the train. Right. There's no question about that. What I'm getting at here is that I don't think that, that this is an accident. You, I review this and immediately I can very quickly go, well, we got two situations here. This is, this is a suicide or there's foul play involved. Because the only way that you could loosely call this an accident is if somebody was chasing her or pushed her as some kind of prank. And then this happens, but that is, that then doesn't become it. That takes away the whole accident idea that means foul play. No, I agree and, and disagree, though, because I, I don't know, again, what does the front of the train look like? Is, is there a possibility that she would have been hit by something that would have then thrown her body into the center? Um, and hit, that would have made... But hit by what? That's what I'm saying is I don't know. I'm not a train expert. But But and, the train is traveling with lights on it, and it's blaring its horn... You either want to be struck by the train or something caused you to be struck by the train that I don't think was an accident. Yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to think of like some of the video footage that I've seen of like where a vehicle clips a person and then the person kind of, instead of being clipped and thrown into the grass or thrown to the side, that their body actually gets thrown 
towards the center of the car. And so again, I don't know what the van, uh, the, the visuals of these individuals were either. And you, you, you see what I'm saying? Like, you, I think there is a possibility that she is clipped by something that then from their vantage point, it looks as if the individual jumped in front of the, the, the tracks. I think you, the situation is this either, either she jumps in front of the tracks or jumps in front of the train or she's lying on the tracks when the train hits her. Yeah. Or like you said, I mean, is there a possibility that, that she, uh, because this is not was out there with somebody and somebody pushed her. Right. And we need to be clear here too, for, for people that have not seen the episode or are unfamiliar with this case, mile marker 45 is not like at an intersection with a road or anything or at a crossing or anything like that. Right. This is out in the middle of the woods at night. And so there's no way to not see the lights of that train. There's no way to not hear that train coming or blaring its horn. In fact, according to the records, they were blaring the horn because of a crossing that took place uh, not terribly far from where she was struck, but but far enough away that it, that she's not at this part of the train tracks because she happens to be crossing because there's a road there. Again, this is out in the out in the woods, and on uh, the Unsolved Mysteries episode, you will see an investigator who is driving. He has to go up a road and then drive down along the rocks for a long period of time before he can get to mile marker 45. Right. Now, when the episode ends, they do present a good amount of material that would suggest that maybe something else took place here. Again, you have to call into question the cell phone, the finding of the cell phone, the location of that cell phone and where it was found. The finding of her shoes and the headband are much more important, in my opinion. She could have she could have just tossed that cell phone out of anger, and she's off on a mission to to run away or to go off and harm herself. It's the shoes that I call into question. I think I, I think it would be incredibly difficult the way that it is explained to us for one to dump their shoes and then walk two and a half to three miles and some of it in some pretty rough terrain. Again, sharp rocks, broken glass, splinters from the wood in an area where she can't see, can't pay good attention to her footing. And we understand and we've gone through some of the trauma, some of the destruction of her body due to due to the incident the nature of the incident. Right. But one thing that we are able to view and see is the bottom of her feet, which don't show, they don't show feet that are all cut up on the bottom. Either she, she hovered her way or somebody helped her to, to that spot. That those are the only things that would stand to make scientific sense to me based off of looking at the bottom of her feet and then knowing that to get there on foot, to get there herself by herself, she would have had to have tossed her shoes and walked that great of a distance to get there. 
Now, mind you, we don't have anybody coming forward saying, yeah, we, we gave her a ride. She was distraught. She was upset. We gave her a ride and dropped her off near the train tracks. Right. There's nobody saying that. We have no evidence Eight years that later. she's impaired in any way. In fact, she's not impaired. We, we know that because of a toxicology that's done. Right. No alcohol or drugs were found in her system. And that further calls into question the, uh, well, maybe she wasn't thinking clearly and she was hysterical and decided to throw herself in front of the train. Well, there's been experts smarter than I that have said, well, once they determined through the toxicology that there was no alcohol or drugs in her system, you really got to call into question that manner of death ruling. Yeah, and we don't have any evidence that, I mean, we have some people saying or speculating that she could have been depressed. Do we have any evidence that, that she had any type of manic episodes? Well, we're going to get into that. So we, what I want to go through first is... When they leave, when you walk away from this episode, I think a lot of people walk away going, well, I, d I don't know if I can make a determination based off of what I saw in Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know if I have enough of the information to have an opinion. Did she kill, take her own life or did something happen to her, something much more sinister? And so following up from once that episode was released, it was it was – Volume three of Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix, and the title of the episode is Mystery at Mile Marker 45. Now, here's an article from ScreenRant.com, and what they're talking about here is what did Unsolved Mysteries leave out of the episode? And so we present this to you and let you make the determination because some of these items may point toward foul play and some of them may point toward the official ruling. Now, one thing that they're quick to state in this article is that the transit police investigators may have lost a potential murder weapon. And this is according to NJ.com. In 2022, they stated that an axe that was covered with red markings was found near the site where Tiffany Valenti's body was found. And once this axe was found, Tiffany's family, or they find out that the axe was found, Tiffany's family and friends hoped that forensic analysis of this item might prove that the red markings were blood, and then that blood might even match Tiffany's DNA. Right. But unfortunately, somehow this item goes missing while in storage before it could be tested to see if it was connected to the crime at all. Now, one thing we need to point out here, and we've talked about this a good deal when we talk about murders that, that take place outdoors, the complications of the crime scene for investigators is that it's not a controlled area. So any and every item that you find in close proximity to your victim or the trail that your victim traveled, you need to collect all of that stuff. And then the problem then becomes for the experts and for detectives and investigators, how do I determine, is there anything on this item to indicate to me that it's connected to the actual crime? Because when you have an uncontrolled scene, 
especially in a park setting or here, a railroad track, you could have cigarette butts, soda cans, any type of debris that may just be there because it was discarded well before the incident even took place. Yeah, items at the scene because of happenstance. Yeah, this item, this axe, let's say, for instance, could have been left there at this scene for no reasons connected to this case. Could have been left there the day before she was killed, a week before, a month, maybe a year. I will say this, though. I They did report the model, uh, make and model of the axe. And I found this to be rather interesting here, Captain, because it is of a newer make, right? So she's killed in 2015. I actually happen to have this same make and model at my home. Now, I was trying to figure out when this, I, when this was first available to the public, you know, when it, when it was made and then being sold to all of us. And look, there's only so much time between cases. We got one week between last week's case and this week's case. There are a lot, there's a lot to go through in this case. I was unable to determine what year that model was first being sold, but I can say this based off of my own experience, it is a newer item. So yeah, but they could mean this, this mean wasn't late or not mean something. It, exactly. But what I'm pointing, what I'm trying to point out here, captain is I can with every bit of confidence say to you that item was not laying there since 1985. It wasn't lying there since 1995. Right. It wasn't lying there since 2005. It's a newer item. And it, I believe that based off of how new this item is, that it, it was probably placed there. And, and again, we're being told that it was found at the scene of where her body was recovered and that it was stored by law enforcement, but then it goes missing. I can say with a lot of confidence that that item, if it, if it's not directly connected to the crime, it didn't end up there too long before this incident. Well, what other items does this article say that unsolved mysteries left out? Well, a lot of these items, Captain, are, I think, suggestive that maybe the suicide ruling was correct, and they're painting us a little bit of a picture here, and I want everybody to take this information on their own and form their own opinions. But according to this article, they're going to talk again about that credit card situation between Tiffany and her friend. So this is straight from the article. The Tiffany Unsolved Mysteries episode mentions that Tiffany Valente had a fight with a friend on the night of her death and was accused of using that friend's credit card without permission. Tiffany admitted that she was guilty of the theft to her mother shortly before she disappeared. While the episode paints Tiffany as a gifted scholar athlete who should have known better than to steal, this was not the first time Tiffany Valente had stolen from a loved one. So they go on to point out that Tiffany had stolen an... I want to be, I don't love the way they word this. So the Daily Beast words this in this manner. Tiffany Valente had stolen money from her parents' bank account a few months before her death. Despite this, her mother defended Tiffany from her friend's accusations of being a thief. Indeed, Unsolved Mysteries also doesn't show 
that the depositions reveal that Tiffany's parents had given her their credit card, nor that her mother specifically cited that as proof that Tiffany had no reason to steal from anyone. Okay. That paints a certain picture that makes it look like this is a habitual offender of someone who is stealing from loved ones and constantly getting caught for it. And of course, we can imagine the stress that that would put on a young person or a stress or even a fracture in these relationships. But as we do know now, it was early reported that the amount in question was $300 from her friend. But we would learn that the amount, the dollar amount was actually $86. And Tiffany has an explanation for this. The explanation she states when she tells her mother, yes, I did use that, my friend's credit card, but it was the day prior and it was because my friend was intoxicated and I was using the credit card to pay for meals and some things while we were hanging out. I guess, I don't know if she was trying to sober up her friend. We don't have the full story there, but that sounds a lot less harmful to their relationship than someone just straight out stealing a credit card out of someone's purse and using it to, to buy a necklace or something or, or, or charge rack up $300 worth of charges. The other thing too, with the stealing money from her parents' bank account. Okay. That's one way to word it. The, but my understanding, according to what her parents would tell us, Tiffany's parents is that they gave her, their daughter, a credit card for emergencies. This is not terribly uncommon. And what usually happens when you give a teenager a credit card for emergencies, they typically find excuses to use your credit card, correct? Well, everything becomes an emergency. That's right. There's new comic books out. Emergency. I was dying of thirst, mom. Very thirsty. I had to buy like 12 Gatorades. (laughs) Couple cases of beer. I want, how come we can never give the credit card to a teenager and they just show up in the driveway with a truck bed full of mulch and they start doing yard work? Like, how come that never happens? It's always like, oh, we were starving to death and I had to take my friends out to dinner. So it doesn't sound so bad when you really review the information. This is not child stealing money out of the bank account of desperate parents. No, this is, they gave her a credit card for emergencies and she irresponsibly used their credit card to buy something she probably shouldn't have. And her parents probably knew that was going to happen a couple of times. The other thing with the friend, according to Tiffany's mother, even though Tiffany denied it in the face of her friend and her friend's mom, Diane, Tiffany's mother, says that I told them, look, I'll talk to Tiffany. We'll get this sorted out. But no matter what, don't worry. Me and my husband will pay you back the $86. That's what I was saying earlier. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, if they came back and said, look, she racked up $1,500, then you go, oh, shit, you know, and and depending on what their finances were, but it seemed like Again, seems like a really good family. And and that's why, too, it's like I don't see where this girl, unless she was having other issues that we just don't know about, 
just doesn't make any sense that she would want to take her own life because of this credit card well, fraud, let's say. Right, and she could have been having other issues. As you pointed out earlier, some people were good at putting on a front, putting on a, a personality in front of all of the people, and then behind the scenes, they are miserable. They are depressed. They right. are in some in some real trouble. And then the, that's the problem, too, is this can happen again anybody that has dealt with depression it's like you could have everything in your life going right and just not feel okay exactly and so a couple things that might have been going on for this young woman now one thing that unsolved mysteries did point out and did cover in their episode was that she had recently ended a relationship or was broken up with it's a little unclear to me who broke up the relationship. The, most reports state that it was mutual, but Tiffany did have a a female girl. Sorry, Tiffany did have a girlfriend, and it was a girlfriend that was known to her friends and to her family. And they split up the week of Tiffany's death. One other item, and this was not covered by Unsolved Mysteries was as stated by this article, and here we go. I'll read right from the article here, Captain. Another detail missing from the Unsolved Mysteries Tiffany Valente episode is that the Valentes had been suspected of abusing Tiffany before her death. According to medical records obtained by the Daily Beast, Child Protective Services, CPS, authorities visited the Valente home on at least one occasion. And this was in 2014. Remember, her death occurred in 2015. And this is because of bruises, a bruise that was seen on Tiffany's arm by a teacher and reported by a teacher because this teacher believed that although this young woman's an athlete, that the teacher did not believe and thought that the bruise was inconsistent with a sports-related injury. And when CPS caseworkers visited the home, the Valente home, there was a discussion with the parents and Tiffany, and it was their findings were that Tiffany's mother had punched her in the arm during the course of a disagreement. For everything true crime, check out truecrimegarage.com. Join us back here for this mystery at mile marker 45. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't.